All right, we want to take a break now to thank one of our sponsors here. You know, we only like to promote and talk about products that we genuinely love here. And here on the podcast, we love our bull and branch sheets. Uh, We've had them in our house more than a year. Jill, I know you have as well. Most, we are huge fans of bull and branch. And if you don't have bull and branch sheets already, what are you waiting for? It's a new year, new you, new sheets. And if all of you with your resolutions are working out, trying to eat healthy, give yourself the gift of some soft sheets. It's a New Year's resolution you can achieve. Bowl and Brand sheets get softer with every wash. We have a few sets here in our house. They're made with 100% organic cotton. They don't have those toxins, those synthetic pesticides, harsh chemicals that many other brands have. So they're especially good if you have sensitive skin. Moshe, that's a big issue in my house. The sheets are good for all seasons. They'll be great. They'll keep you cool in the summer. They'll keep you warm in the winter. And right now, we have a special deal going for the Mo News community. On your first order of Bowl and Branch, you can get 15% off. Just head over to bowlandbranch.com. That is bowl, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Use the promo code, what else? Mo News. Keep in mind, exclusions do apply. So see the site for details. Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, August 23rd. I'm Moshe Wanunu, and you're listening to the Mo News Podcast. This is the place where we bring you just the facts from verified sources and a breakdown of what matters in the news. We try to read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. There's a lot to get to today at home and abroad. We have the latest in Russia, where they say they've already wrapped up that mysterious car bomb investigation. I'll have details on who they're pointing the finger at. Two weeks after that search of his Mar-a-Lago home, former President Trump has a new legal filing, what he is asking a judge to do in regards to what the FBI took, as well as what that judge is saying about whether he's going to allow the release of that affidavit later this week. Pfizer says it has a new vaccine that helps deal with Omicron. They're seeking FDA approval. I'll tell you about that. Several more states are set to ban abortion this week. We'll tell you about the state of things two months after the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade. And we have a little bit of entertainment news for you today, including how well that new prequel to Game of Thrones did Sunday night on HBO. It turns out it broke records for HBO Max. Let's start in Florida, where we got a lot of news on Monday, including late Monday night on the federal investigation into the classified documents that were allegedly at Trump's Mar-a-Lago residence. The feds have reportedly recovered more than 300 documents with classified markings from former President Trump since he left office. That's what sources are telling the New York Times on Monday night. That included 150 classified documents in the first batch that was returned back in January, another set that was provided by Trump's aides to the Justice Department in June, and the material seized by the FBI during that search warrant earlier this month. The amount of sensitive material that has been found and was at Mar-a-Lago starting back in January helps explain why the Justice Department moved to announce a criminal investigation in the spring and, of course, moved to have the search warrant of the residents earlier this month. The New York Times actually reports that Trump himself personally went through material that was returned back in January. This was the initial request by the archive saying, hey, there's some stuff missing from the White House, former President Trump. So he apparently, according to the Times, personally went through some of it, uh, returned some of it. The government realized that not all of the stuff they had requested was returned. They opened the criminal investigation in the spring. They make these requests. They subpoena. Eight weeks after the subpoena, they got the search warrant. Legally, all of this material belongs to the National Archives by law. By It belongs to us, the people. It's a rule that has been in effect for several presidents. It is punishable as a federal crime, including now by prison time. That's because Trump actually signed a law post-Hillary Clinton to make the keeping of classified documents 
a bigger crime from misdemeanor to felony. And so the larger impression here was either former President Trump was being pretty cavalier about keeping this material, or he was under the impression that, of course, he could just announce that everything was declassified and he got to keep it. There is no written evidence, though, that he declassified this in the appropriate way. Uh, the bigger question, though, was he just cavalier or was he actually being deceptive here, trying to hide stuff from the government through these various rounds they did trying to collect all of these documents? That headline of the New York Times on Monday night comes as Trump's team on Monday asked a federal court to temporarily block the FBI from reviewing the materials it seized from the home two weeks ago. The Trump team is calling for the appointment of what's called a special master. So you had the search warrant two weeks ago. Now the Trump team two weeks later is calling for a special master to review the FBI and everything they took. The motion from Trump seeks an injunction that bars the Justice Department from any further review of any of those seized materials until the special master can get involved here. It's also requesting a more detailed receipt from the government of all the items that were seized from the home. Trump's team here feels that the search was overbroad and is actually asking for the DOJ to return materials they say was not covered by the scope of the search warrant, though the judge, the federal magistrate judge, that's Bruce Reinhart, he's the one who has signed off on the search warrant, signed off on the release of the search warrant, is actually considering a potential release of the affidavit here, actually put out a statement earlier on Monday where he said he reviewed the affidavit and says there was probable cause that evidence of multiple federal crimes were taking place at Mar-a-Lago, so he feels pretty good about his decision to authorize the search two weeks ago as unprecedented as it was. Now, the judge here has a big decision to make. There is this request for a special master. We'll see what unfolds there. But this week, what we know we're watching is by Thursday, he has asked the Justice Department to review the affidavit. This is the document that the FBI would have filed requesting the search warrant. Sometimes it runs hundreds of pages. This entails details on what the FBI knew, who they were talking to, why the search was so urgent, what crimes they believe former President Trump or his allies could have been committed. This is the affidavit they filed with the judge uh, to get the search warrant. The judge thinks that because of the public scrutiny, because of the public interest, that we should be releasing part of that affidavit. So last week on Thursday, there was this hearing. And so the Justice Department said, listen, judge, we cannot release the affidavit. There's too many details on this. This is an open investigation. The judge said, try me. I'm giving you a week till this Thursday now to uh, redact it, cover up the words or parts of it that you feel should not be public, uh, that protect sources, etc. But try me. I think that the public deserves to know more about the search, given how unprecedented this is. And so the judge today, in his filing, in addition to defending uh, his decision to approve the search warrant, said, listen, I'm going to take this affidavit uh, concern seriously. Let's see what DOJ comes up with. I may well agree with the Justice Department that we shouldn't release any of the affidavit, but I am very interested to see if there are parts of it that can be released that help, again, educate the public about what took place here. And so there's a lot of things we're monitoring here. You have the New York Times headline about the number of classified documents. You have the call by the Trump team for a special master. And now, of course, in the coming days, we will have a call here on the affidavit. Interestingly, on the affidavit, as I've noted in previous podcasts, the Trump team just sat in court last week. They didn't say one way or another whether they approve of the release of the affidavit. Uh, ultimately, they just sat there in court despite former President Trump saying on social media, release it all, release it all. There are people within Trump camp who are concerned as to what that affidavit might say, whether it might be negatively uh, reflective of the former president. And so he did not actually give his legal team authority in court to actually call for the release of the affidavit, which I thought was an interesting note. So anyway, we're going to keep monitoring this headline throughout the week. This is the story that keeps on evolving and we'll see uh, what happens in the coming days and especially on Thursday. All right, let's stay at home here where three more states have abortion trigger laws that are set to go into effect this week. Texas, Tennessee, and Idaho 
all already have restrictions on abortion, but their trigger laws, these are laws that were set prior to Roe v. Wade being overturned, are set to now go into effect on Thursday. They will either outright outlaw the procedure or increase the penalties for doctors who perform an abortion. At least 11 other states so far have banned abortion, most from the time of conception, some at the six-week mark. There are three additional states that had trigger bans that are currently being blocked by courts. Those are laws in Utah, Wyoming, and North Dakota. In Tennessee, starting Thursday, abortion will be banned except in cases related to preventing the death or injury of a pregnant woman. The law will make no exceptions for rape or incest. Until now, the law in Tennessee until Thursday is a ban at six weeks. In Idaho, they will be imposing a ban with an exception for rape or incest or medical emergency. Physicians who perform abortions outside those circumstances, though, will be at risk for up to five years in prison. And in Texas, there is a current ban which makes no exceptions for rape or incest. The law on Thursday will toughen the punishment for those involved in illegal abortion, putting physicians who perform the procedure at risk of facing life in prison or fines of $100,000 or more. It does, again, allow procedures for pregnant patients in medical emergencies, but in a number of states, we have seen a lot of confusion as to what is a medical emergency when it comes to the mother. Looking ahead, there are a couple other more states that have bans going to effect soon. In Indiana, they passed a law that will go into effect, the ban will go into effect on September 15th. Arizona's abortion ban, which will criminalize abortions after 15 weeks, goes into effect on September 24th, but there is a stricter ban that is being considered by the courts. This is a law that existed more than 100 years ago that Arizona courts are ruling to see whether that law is legal again, since it was never overturned in the 70s when Roe v. Wade took effect. In all, nearly 21 million American women, about one in three girls and women in the U.S. between the ages of 15 and 44, have lost access to the procedure over the course of the past two months. Okay, some news on the COVID vaccine front. I've been getting a lot of questions from a number of you who are asking, what's the latest? When do we get our updates, our shots? For many of you, it's been more than a year now since you may have gotten your initial round of shots or your booster. Pfizer and its German partner, BioNTech, said yesterday that they are seeking authorization for a COVID vaccine booster that has been retooled to target the Omicron variant. They say they have doses available to ship immediately after they get FDA approval. The request to the FDA is for these so-called bivalent vaccines, which are built to both fight the new Omicron BA4 and BA5 variants, as well as the original coronavirus strain. Pfizer says it is ready to deliver doses as soon as next month under a $3 billion deal that's in place with the US government for 105 million doses. The UK has already become the first country to clear the bivalent vaccine. That one is made by Moderna. Back in June, the FDA did ask all the vaccine makers to start to tailor shots to the new subvariants. Effectively, what they're trying to do here is have the vaccines for COVID kind of work along the vaccines that are built every year and made every year for the flu vaccine, looking at new variants in store and then trying to basically catch up to them. Again, it's been uh, more than a year since many of us got those original doses, uh, a year since a lot of people got boosters. And so many folks are looking for guidance from the CDC, from the FDA on what they should be doing going into another winter where we'll be likely facing another variant of the COVID-19 virus. Staying with that theme, we got news on Monday from Dr. Anthony Fauci. He has officially filed notice that he is going to be leaving the government at the end of this year. Fauci has served as the president and director of NIAID, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, for 38 years. He says he's leaving the position to pursue the next chapter of his career. He announced, quote, while I'm moving on from my current positions, I am not retiring, he says. Fauci is set to turn 82 years old this December. He's a uh, 
Christmas Eve birthday, if uh, memory serves me right. He says after 50 years, more than 50 years in government service, he uh, is looking forward to the next phase of his career. Most recently, he has served as Biden's chief medical advisor, though Fauci has served seven presidents going back to Ronald Reagan. Uh, he has been mentioned in presidential debates. Some people like to play the clip of George H.W. Bush mentioning Fauci and what he was saying at the time about AIDS back in 1988. Biden praised Fauci for being a public servant and what he called a steady hand as the country navigates COVID-19, as well as uh, all the various viruses we've been dealing with in the past few years. And while he is one of the most cited researchers of all time, and it had been widely known in circles for decades, it really was this pandemic that made him the most well-known and a household name. At the same time, he's received his share of criticism. There are a number of folks on Capitol Hill who feel that he hasn't been totally open with them. That includes Rand Paul. And there have been some former Trump officials, including one, Kash Patel, who went on Newsmax, which is a conservative news outlet, on Monday to say they're looking to investigate Fauci and potentially have charges against him at some point if the statute of limitations doesn't run out. So Fauci does have his share of critics. They weren't very specific as to what they think he might have done that deserves a criminal investigation. At the same time, he does have his share of critics from the right. But at this point, after more than 50 years of public service, Fauci is officially set to retire this December. Okay, some news out of Moscow, where we're continuing to watch the fallout from that car bomb on Saturday night that killed the daughter of an influential Putin advisor. Russia said on Monday already that they have wrapped up the car bomb investigation in just over 24 hours. This is the uh, car bomb that killed 29-year-old Daria Dugina. The FSB, which is the uh, effectively some sort of version of the FBI combined with the CIA, says the blame falls on Ukraine. The FSB released a video showing its alleged Ukrainian suspect crossing the Russian border from Ukraine, and then another video clip of that suspect entering a building, though it didn't provide other photo or video evidence to corroborate any of these allegations. More specifically, what the Russians are saying here is that there's a Ukrainian woman who is traveling with her 12-year-old daughter from Ukraine to Russia. At some point, they claim that she uh, put the bomb in the car to kill uh, Dugin and Dugina, and then fled to Estonia. The Ukrainian officials down in Kyiv are rejecting those accusations as fictional. Estonia, for its part, says it has no idea what the Russians are talking about. The big issue here is that the target here may have been Alexander Dugin, that is Daria Dugina's father. He is an uh, advisor to Putin who's been described at times as Putin's brain. And the theory is that uh, the target was Alexander Dugin. They were together, he and his daughter, on Saturday night. But last second, he chose not to travel with her. Her car ended up exploding. He traveled separately. He's currently mourning and wants retribution and revenge against the Ukrainians. He says that victory is the only solution to get back at the Ukrainians. Again, the Ukrainians are saying here, we had nothing to do with this. She's not relevant for, to us. He's not really relevant to us. Why would we explode random car bombs in Moscow? At the same time, you have the FSB, which is known for wrapping up investigations really quick. Uh, they don't want to be, they were embarrassed by this entire thing. So they want to point the finger right away at Ukraine. Prior to this, Dugin and Dugina would often go on Russian state television to call for a more imperialist, aggressive Russia, call for them to defeat Ukraine. Their belief, especially Dugin's belief, which people believe has had a lot of influence on Putin, is that Russia needs to restore its glory of the Soviet era and reclaim all the territory it's lost over the last 30 years. This all comes as a shadowy Russian group, a new group we haven't heard about, called the National Republican Army, claimed responsibility for the attack. It appears the FSB and the Russian government, for its part, doesn't care to 
uh, entertain that. They want to point the finger at Ukraine for all of this. And this all comes as this Wednesday, tomorrow, marks six months since Russia first invaded Ukraine. And incidentally, August 24th is also Ukrainian Independence Day from the Soviet Union. So the Ukraine is on very high alert here. And they're very concerned that this latest uh, claim by Russia that they were involved in this car bomb could lead to uh, issues and potential assassination attempts inside Ukraine. One other international headline we're watching, this is the story we've been following out of Finland. The Finnish Prime Minister, Sanna Marin, she's officially tested negative for drugs. This is the fallout we've been telling you from the video that was leaked last week of her partying with friends. She got a lot of flack in Helsinki from some other leaders who said, you should take a drug test. We are concerned about the type of partying and dancing you were doing in this video. Marin claims this is misogynist and related to her age. She happens to be one of the youngest leaders in the world. She's 36 years old. She agreed to take the drug test despite saying she had never taken any drugs, even as a teenager. She denied doing anything illegal at this party. She says it was just a video of her dancing with friends. She did admit she drank some alcohol, but again, she took a drug test here and she has tested negative for any use of drugs. The prime minister adds that her ability to perform official duties were unimpaired the night of the party, and she would have easily left the party had she been required to do work as prime minister. A Finnish government official told uh, Finnish media that the test screen for amphetamines, barbiturates, cannabis, cocaine, methadone, and a range of other narcotics, and Marin, the prime minister, paid for the test herself. I've been hearing from a lot of you on Instagram about this. You know, some are saying, you know, she shouldn't have been going out to nightclubs. She's the prime minister of a country. Uh, Finland has, you know, real issues. At the same time, most of you are saying she's been unfairly targeted since she's young. She's a woman. There's a hashtag called Solidarity with Sana, hashtag Solidarity with Sana. Uh, people posting videos of themselves dancing and partying with their friends online saying she's entitled to it. And by the way, I've mentioned this in a couple posts, but Finland is officially the happiest country on earth. They survey all countries around the world. And for five years running, the Finnish people are the happiest. And so it appears the prime minister is like, I'm running this country pretty smoothly. I should be allowed to have fun with my friends once in a while. Okay, a couple other headlines here before we let you go on this Tuesday. As all of you look for new ways to save money as we face record inflation, a potential recession here, a new study is out that finds that most of us, one out of two of us, are still holding on to unused gift cards. This is a survey out of creditcards.com. The average unused amount is $175 per person. That's up from $116 last year. For the entire U.S. adult population, that adds up to $21 billion in gift cards. My wife, uh, Alex, uh, likes to make fun of me because I often ask her whenever we enter a store, hey, do we have a gift card for this place? I, I sort of love using gift cards. I know we have a few gift cards that we have to use, but it's pretty incredible. Americans hold $21 billion in gift cards. So experts suggest you take inventory of your unused gift cards in the coming uh, weeks and months. We're just over 100 days till Christmas here, actually closer to 125 days till Christmas. So you still have time. CNBC notes that you also have the option, instead of using your gift cards, to sell them using websites called Card Cash, Raise, and ClipCard. That's ClipCard with a K, K-E-R-D. I'm not as familiar with those websites, but I am going to check them out now that I just found out about them. And I want to end here with a little entertainment news. It appears that the sequel, or I should say prequel, to Game of Thrones is off to a very strong start. I'm sure some of you caught it or are watching it on demand this week, but House of Dragon is officially now HBO's biggest series premiere in history. On Monday, Warner Brothers Discovery, they own HBO, revealed that about 10 million people 
across linear and all HBO Max platforms tuned in to watch the first episode of the prequel series on Sunday night. House of Dragon effectively takes place 200 years before Game of Thrones, that successful series, and it tells the story of the Targaryen Civil War that takes place a couple centuries before what unfolded in Game of Thrones takes place. It's actually based on a novel, I don't know how many of you have read this, by George R.R. R. Martin called Fire and Blood. Warner Brothers Discovery is pretty uh, jazzed about the 10 million viewers. They say that uh, the number could double or quadruple by the time that all the people watch on demand uh, the series premiere. This does come three years after the Game of Thrones finale, which some of you did not love. That last episode of Game of Thrones brought in nearly 20 million people back in May of 2019. 10 million people, pretty successful for the live viewing of House of Dragon, the premiere on Sunday night. They're expecting more uh, on demand. And so we'll see what unfolds here with House of Dragon. Uh, I'd love to hear how you guys are feeling about it. And I will continue to update to see whether people are feeling good enough about it to keep watching it. I believe it's about 10 episodes that'll be rolling out over the course of the uh, coming months here. I want to thank all of you for listening to the Mo News Daily Podcast as we get through this Tuesday in late August. Let's continue to take in uh, the summer while we still have it. I'd love your feedback on how we're doing, on what we're covering, on what you'd like to see. Email us over at podcast at mo.news. Tomorrow, we have a special double edition. We'll have the morning feed as well as part three of our conversation with former CIA director Michael Morell um, as we mark six months of the war in Ukraine as well as Ukrainian Independence Day. I'll be talking to the former CIA director about when this war might finally end and what is going through Putin's mind at this point. Also, please consider subscribing to the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com and follow me over on Instagram at Moshe at M-O-S-H-E-H. And don't forget to follow us or subscribe to the show on whatever app you're listening to us on and leave us a review. Every review matters and helps us continue to grow the podcast on every platform. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow, twice, twice tomorrow. It's a very exciting Wednesday.